0: Welcome and thank you for connecting with us at Parkwood Baptist Church. Here at Parkwood, we exist to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. You can find more information about our church at parkwoodonline.org. By visiting our website, you'll be able to learn more about Parkwood and our mission. Now join us as we grow together through the teaching of God's word. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 10 is our text. If for some reason you were not able to get a ballot, uh, you can get one at the info desk after the service is over. I invite you, if you would, to stand as I read the word of the Lord. I must go on boasting, there is, though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited three times. I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help. I confess the weakness of every one of us in this room. And one of the weaknesses that we share at this point in time is that we think we are more powerful than we are. So confront us in thinking more of ourselves. Confront us from pushing away from the very things this text preaches and teaches and calls us to embrace your holy word. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Started high school in the ninth grade. The day I started high school, I was five foot four inches tall, and weighed a crushing 100 pounds was a menace to be dealt with Uh, from midway from midway in my freshman year or excuse me from the beginning of my sophomore year to the beginning of my junior year I grew 12 inches 12 inches and gained 25 pounds my dad wouldn't let me play football because he was afraid I would cut somebody in the midst of all of that, a neighbor um, whom I'd known growing up befriended me even more closely. Now, we could not be any more opposite. His name was Grant Pitts. You can Google him. Don't do it right now. Uh, Grant uh, was massive. He was so massive that in high school, he held the teenage world record at that point in time for the bench press. He could bench press over 500 pounds, and this was completely natural. And Grant would let me work out with him. In fact, he wanted me to. Him and some of his big beefy buddies, I would go to the gym with them, and they would bait me into doing things. They would put a lot more weight on the, on the bar than I could actually do. And they would help me get it off the bench and it would descend fairly quickly to my chest. And then it would lay there for a while until Grant would reach down. And that wasn't like I was pushing it up. And he put his finger down. Like if you've ever been around weightlifting, you know, it's just somebody just got to touch the bar sometimes and it comes up. No, no. He had to grab the bar and pick it up and put it back on the rack. You see, I was weak. He was powerful. I, I completely needed him. Now, this is where we are. We are not Christians who just about haven't pushed up and all we need is God to go up. No, here's who we are. We are people with the weight trapped on our chest. And without God himself, by his grace, reaching down and pulling it up, we have no hope. That's the point of this text. That the Lord's powerful provision of sufficient grace is made perfect in weakness. Paul, in chapter 11, flowed through this litany of weaknesses, this litany of difficulty that he's experienced as a follower of Christ and as a minister of the gospel. He concludes with the story of being let down in Damascus through the window, this first display of weakness, and now he's about to turn to his greatest display of weakness. And the way he makes the turn can mess up some of you in your mind and you get focused on the very thing he doesn't want you to focus on. You say, what do you mean? I'll help you. The first thing we want to see is the Lord's sovereign hand graciously supplies for our good through our weakness. He says, I must go on weakness, go, excuse me, go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. So, so Paul's saying there's nothing that can make himself better or to make him look better. Now, it's going to appear so. What he's about to say is going to make you think he's gaining something here. He says, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, this is likely a boast of the super apostles. They would boast of having visions and revelations and would use that as a part of their preaching and teaching. We know that Paul had multiple visions and revelations, Acts records six different events where Paul had some form of vision or revelation. Here you have a record of one of his revelations and it's going to seem like it's confusing and I'll try to explain, this is Paul talking. Now let's just just pause in our brains for a minute and, and, and put it out there. Our culture, our Christian culture is absolutely mesmerized by somebody who has a vision or revelation. Now here's how I know that the top selling book in the last decade is a book written by the narration of a four-year-old. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I made a movie about it. Heaven is for real. So we needed a four-year-old to tell us heaven is for real. We need a four-year-old to describe it for us? Brothers and sisters, you need to dismiss that kind of stuff. Here's why you need to dismiss it. Because the canon of Scripture is closed. The next revelation that we will receive is Jesus Christ splitting the sky. Until then, His Word is sufficient. Second reason you need to dismiss it: If God was going to describe in detail heaven, this would have been the moment, right here. Watch what He does. I know a man, and verse seven we're going to figure out the man's Paul in Christ, who 14 years ago was called up into the third heaven. Third is a number of perfection. Could also refer to the atmosphere level one stars, the dwelling place of God, the third heaven. Don't get hung up in that. He says, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. You notice he repeats that twice in verse 2 and in verse 3. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows what he's doing. is separating himself from Gnosticism. Gnosticism says the spirit is good. The body's bad. Paul's saying no. It's quite possibly in the body this happened. He said, I know a man who is called up into paradise. Jesus said to the man on the cross, today you will be with me, where? In paradise. This is the dwelling place of God. So this happened specifically 14 years ago. It was a literal happening caught up into paradise. Verse four, and he heard things that what? Cannot be told. Which man may not utter. Redundancy. So, what Paul experienced there cannot be explained in human language. It has to be known when we see him face to face. Verse 5. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my behalf, I will not boast, except for my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Now, here's the core issue. Paul did not want to go on a speaking tour of what happened when he was drawn up into the third heaven. He knew this would sell books. The super apostles were selling books. People have always been deceived by this kind of stuff. What did Paul want people to see? What did Paul want people to hear? As you flow through the book, they want, he wants them to see Christ in him. And we see Christ in people when we see weakness. When we see power perfected in weakness, Christ's power being displayed in the life of believers. What do we want us to hear? He wants us to hear the gospel. The truth that Christ, the suffering servant, gave his life. We've sung of it today, that he gave his life in our place, that he died for our sake, for our sin, that he was buried on the third day, he rose again. We see the weak and conquering Christ. That's what he wanted people to see and to hear. Now, this is crucial. Why does Paul talk about this third heaven thing? Why does he even bring this up? Here's why he brings it up to explain the thorn. Paul receives the thorn because of his experience of being caught up into the third heaven. So if he would not went right to talking about the thorn, you'd have had no basis for it. He's given you the basis for the thorn. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Now, you know, Paul's talking about himself because of what he saw to keep him from becoming conceited, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. The Greek word for thorn here means a stake, a pole, something sharp with a pointed end. Now, it would exhaust you to know how much has been written about the speculation of the thorn. If Paul wanted you to know what the thorn was, he would have told you right here. He didn't tell us, therefore he didn't want us to know. I think think for the purpose of the scripture, it's because if Paul had told us what the thorn was, we would have said that's the only thorn anybody can ever get. He leaves it open-ended for the sake of the rest of us to understand. This was a thorn given in the flesh. This is something that he experienced physically, likely. So most people think it's a physical ailment. Some people argue from Galatians, it's something to do with his eye. Again, that is absolutely not clear. Others think it's persecution. Some think it was depression. Others think it was people. Here's what we know. This thorn in the flesh was debilitating and humiliating. And when the super apostles looked at it, they saw this affliction and weakness and they said that is a sign of the absence of God's blessing on Paul's life. Some of you have been around Christians like that. You don't have enough faith, Paul. He says, a thorn in the flesh, has given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. The word harass means torment. Implies some kind of humiliating violence, like being slapped. It's in the present tense. It means it was persistent, that it happened over and over again to Paul. Paul. It would not leave. This is similar to Job. Remember, Satan, under the sovereign hand of God, was allowed to do things to Job, just not take his life. What we know from Job and from what Paul's saying here, a messenger of Satan to harass me, we know that under God's sovereign hand, he uses even a messenger of Satan to carry out his plan. Now, You better be real careful with that. People too quickly roll off their tongue, the devil this and the devil that. You're not Paul. It it, it could be a messenger of Satan harassing you, and it could not be. Your weakness could be something that God is allowing through the hand of the evil one. But be careful in assigning it. So why was the thorn, a messenger of Satan, tormenting or harassing him? What's the end of the verse? Why? To keep me from becoming conceited. (laughs) Nobody in here struggles with your pride, do you? I'm the only one. So I'll just talk about myself with Paul. I have found that in my life that the very thing that God is stripping away from me to keep me from becoming conceited, I see as a barrier to God's will when it is God's will. You know why it's God's will? Because God is opposed to the proud. Opposed. It's not that he's not in favor. He is in opposition to the proud. But he gives grace to who? The humble. So how does humility come? I'm quoting James 4. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The verse prior to that. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. How does God humble people? God humbles people through difficulty and weakness. At least that's how God's humbled me. So I want you to ask yourself a couple questions as we move into the second point. Where is God humbling me? Or where do I need to be humbled? Or... Where am I exalting myself? Remember, it's a good thing that God opposes the proud. He humbles us sometimes with a thorn, but always through weakness. Always. So when weakness comes, here's what we see. That the Lord's powerful provision of sufficient grace is made perfect in weakness. The Lord's powerful provision of sufficient grace is made perfect in weakness. Verse eight, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. This is pleading prayer, that he's coming before the, the Lord God and he's pleading in prayer. He's asking God to take the thorn away. He asked him three times. Now this parallels the prayer of Jesus in the garden that if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. So that's the core issue in the prayer. Lord, is it your will? If it's your will, remove this. Why three times? That's not absolutely clear. I I don't know that that's a formula because there are other scriptures that talk about the persistent widow. Here's what is clear. God's answer to Paul was... No. No. I had a woman in tears after the first service who had grown up in an environment where she's always been told, if you're getting the answer, you're not getting the answer you're praying for, you don't have enough faith. Where, Where is room for that form of Christianity for God saying no? Would that form of Christianity rebuke Paul? Paul, you don't have enough faith. Ask God in faith. Paul says he has three times. The answer is no. So many times, so many times. I'm not trying to rebuke you. I'm trying to be pastoral and compassionate with you. But So many times in pastoral ministry, I've had angry Christians say to me, the Lord never answered my prayer. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Particularly when you're talking about some past event that can't be undone. Like death or Something that's happened, losing a job or whatever. God didn't answer my prayer. Yes, he did. The answer was no. There's got to be room in your theology for no. Because until you understand the no, you're never going to understand the rest of this text. God's answer was no, because here's what God wanted Paul to know. My grace is sufficient for you. You don't need what you're asking for. What you need is me. You need my grace, that which is unmerited. The same grace that saves you, which you did not earn and deserve, becomes what is absolutely necessary to sustain you through your life. My power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is made perfect. It is on full display in weakness. Remember, he said this in chapter four, verse seven. For we have this treasure in jars of clay, fragile people. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? Why does God put the treasure of the gospel in fragile people to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us? Belongs to God and not to us. This power is perfected in weakness, dependent on the grace of God. Why? Or what's the result? Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul's saying, I'm going to embrace and I'm going to boast I'm, and, and, and gladly in my weaknesses because I want the power of Christ. Here's what he literally says. I want the power of Christ to tabernacle on me. I want Christ to dwell on me. He writes in 1 Corinthians, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You were held in honor, but we in disrepute. Paul's saying, Y'all have invented. Corinthians, you've invented another form of Christianity. This form of Christianity says everybody who's a Christian is wise, powerful, and should be held in honor. And he says that's not Christianity at all. Here's what Christianity looks like. It's people who are held in disrepute, who are weak, and they're fools in terms of the world's view. So as fools for Christ, we embrace weakness for the sake of Christ. Here's where this is going. This is the culmination, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'm quoting. None is too weak for the service to Christ, but many are too strong to be used by him. It is because the Lord will have all the glory that he uses those who are acutely aware of their weaknesses. They know it. They know they're they're not making excuses. They know their weakness is a means for the power of God to tabernacle on us. The self-sufficient will remain strangers to the power of God's grace, which is only manifested in conscious weakness. So here's my question to you. Are you aware of your weaknesses? Are you aware? And let me go a step further. Here's, here's really my big question today. This, so what? Am I content with my weaknesses for the sake of Christ? Am I content with them? Is it, is it my glory that I'm, I'm concerned with or his glory? Is it my mission or his mission? Is it my sake or is it for the sake of Christ? Again, I'm quoting, there's no value in the endurance of hardships and indignities in themselves. There's no virtue in suffering. I I don't want you to misconstrue this sermon at all. There's no virtue in suffering. Everything turns on this phrase, for the sake of Christ, only a fanatic would find contentment in self-inflicted suffering and miseries. But a Christian A follower of Jesus will find special contentment and suffering that is endured for the sake of Christ. Why is that? Because when we are emptied of ourselves, we are filled with Christ. I want you to go to Philippians chapter 4, the most abused verse in all of modern Christendom. Verse 11, prior to verse 13, Paul writes, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation to be content. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? I am content with my weaknesses. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and need. Now, I want you to insert from chapter 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. I want you to insert a phrase to help you make sense then of verse 13. I have learned the secret of facing plenty, hunger and abundance and need for when I am weak, then I'm strong. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's in that weakness that I understand. That's where the strength's coming from. And that strength is by God's grace. I don't earn it. I don't deserve it. But He gives it to me to strengthen me. So I just want to think about weaknesses for a minute let me just define a weakness it's something that's beyond your control it could be physical i'm I'm not belittling here taking care of yourself okay i I don't think a christian should play willy-nilly with their health okay but i know a lady 25 years ago she was one of the first health nuts i'd ever met who lectured me all the time about what i ate what i fed the youth group all that she was the healthiest person I ever met and she contracted a cancer that ravaged and killed her in three months. She never ate anything bad. There are things physically that are going to happen to all of you that are beyond your control. There's nothing you're going to be able to do about it. You're not going to be able to stop it. There's some of you have emotional weaknesses. Now, we all struggle with our emotions, but some of you struggle with depression. Depression. It's a real chemical thing that's happening to you. Here's one of the things I've found great comfort in. If I study Christians of the past, so many of them struggle with depression. Some of you are are, are struggling with loss. Someone in your life whom you've lost through, through death or maybe they've left or whatever. Some of you are struggling with rejection. People reject you. There's nothing you can do about it. Some of you are struggling with difficult people, period. And here's what I'm watching. Hear me. People laughed in the first service, and I didn't mean to set it up as a joke because this isn't funny. I'm watching, as a pastor, human beings isolate themselves from other human beings because they don't do difficult people. You're actually hurting yourself, you're not helping. Because there's nobody easy in this world, including you. We are all difficult. And if all we do is run from everyone, we're going to find ourselves so incredibly lonely that our difficulty then will have only just begun. To the parents in the room, I'm not talking about the terrible twos here. But for some of you, it's your kids. There comes a day when your kids are going to be out of your control. And they're going to make choices and decisions. You can't decide your life's over because they didn't make the choices and decisions you wanted them to make. So what you're saying, preacher, what I'm saying is weakness comes in so many different ways that we've got to look at those things and say, in that, in that weakness, that when I am weak, he is strong, that Christ in me, that Christ in me then makes himself known. Let let, let me illustrate. There's a preacher, his name was John Stott. Um, He preached and wrote extensively in the latter part of the 20th century. Early in his ministry, he's from England, he went to Australia to preach a series of messages trying to reach college-age students. He had been there for days, and and the Lord was moving. The night prior to his last sermon, he got a phone call from London that his father had died. And he had a decision to make. Do I get on a plane tomorrow morning and fly back to be with my family or do I stay? And Stott made the decision that that the best thing to do would be to stay and to preach. He woke up the next morning and his voice was gone. as a result of all the sermons he preached. But the decision was made that that night he would preach. By the way, Stott was never married. He lost his father. He couldn't talk. And he stood that night and in a whisper and a monotone he preached the gospel And the Spirit of God failed. And dozens, dozens were converted. Years later, Stott returned to Australia. And people would come up to him. And he said this happened over and over. And it happened many years as he would come back. But people were coming up to him and they were saying, because he was not fully aware of what happened. People would come up to him and say, Do you remember the croaking sermon? It's what it became known as the croaking sermon. To which, in embarrassment, Stott would respond, Yes, I, I, I do. And then the individual would look at him and say, I was converted that night. Dozens of times this happened to Stott. You remember the croaking sermon? I was converted that night. Brothers and sisters, The people living around you don't need a book by a four-year-old. It's not what they need. What they need to see is that in the midst of real life, they need to see Christ in you. And when they see Christ in you, Peter says they're going to ask you, what is that? What is that? I believe this. One of the reasons that Christians are so rarely asked about their faith is because the Christian faith now looks like the world. It's powerful. It's individualistic. It's conquering. People are always going to be drawn to Christ in the midst of weakness. Here's what this pastor can say in this man. The people that have marked my life, are not powerful people. The people that have marked my life are people who walked through great weakness and suffering and trusted Jesus and spoke His truth to me. That's who we're to be. This is Paul's point. That Christ's sake is what's at stake here. That His power is perfected in our weakness. How do we know this? Because God Himself became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory full of grace and truth. He suffered and died in our place. He gave himself to full weakness on full display. And that's who he calls us to be people who embrace weakness as he did. Let's pray. Lord, I know, I know that this is countercultural, it's counterintuitive, and for some, it's upsetting to hear. But Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that you would make yourself clear to them and that they would embrace and that they would be content with their weakness and that for the sake of Christ. Lord, help us, help us all to proceed by faith and to embrace who we are and what we have been given in Christ. And it is all by your grace, which is enough. It is enough. So take this song now and may this be a groaning prayer in this room. Among those who have gathered, that we express our need for you.